Kelly, for praying for me. I just uh, feel I need a little more prayer reinforcement, so I'm going to do that. Please join me. And I'd like you, if you're able just to stand, those lawn chairs can put your legs to sleep after a long sit. So let's just stand, prepare ourselves physically to, uh, to hear the Word of God and to be uh, comfortable while we do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have given us great and precious, precious promises in your word. You've given us the hope of the gospel, but you've also given us many exhortations and warning, warnings about um, complacency and about the need for real faith that produces real fruit in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that as I try to preach your word, that you would... Uh, give power, give unction, that your words might reach our hearts, that your word might change our hearts, that we might come to know Jesus if we do not know him, and that we would learn of him if we already know him. Thank you, Lord, for what you're about to do through the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, years ago when we started this church, or when the Lord started it, we had to think of a, a name for ourselves. We had a dear friend down in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, named Bob DeWay. And he pastored a church called Gospel of Grace Fellowship. And when he found out that we had uh, started this new church, kind of splitting off an old church, he, uh, he suggested, well, why don't you take our name? It's not copyrighted. And we considered it, and it seemed like a very good name, a very fitting name for our group and for, for any church, really. Gospel of Grace Fellowship. I think that name really describes what we are all about. We're all about the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to save sinners. We are all about grace, God's unmerited favor secured for us when Christ died in our pay, place, paying for our sin so that God was just in justifying us. Rising from the grave for our, for our justification, Jesus triumphed over sin and death, and he ascended to heaven and asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, bring us to life, and indwell all who believe the gospel. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we who have believed have been crucified with Christ, yet we live a new life with a new nature. We are all clothed with a righteousness alien to ourselves, and the unmerited favor that we enjoy rests solely on the merits of Christ. This is the basis of our fellowship, gospel of grace fellowship. We are a fellowship of blood-washed, forgiven, redeemed, regenerated sinners. The basis of our fellowship has nothing to do with our achievements or our worthiness. It has everything to do with the gospel of grace. Through the years we have grown in our understanding of grace and have been humbled to see that even the faith to believe the gospel is a gift of God. That our salvation was a matter of God's choice, not ours. The greatest lesson of our journey together as a congregation has been 
been that salvation is of the Lord. He is the author and finisher of our faith. So if God has done everything, what's the point of doing anything? If our tickets are punched, why not just enjoy the ride? I'm sure you've heard someone say something like, I'll change when God changes me. Or, I'll deal with that sin when God convicts me. Or, I'm just going to let go and let God. Friends, statements like these may be well-intended. And they may appear to elevate the sovereignty of God. But in truth, they reveal a kind of stubbornness and an ignorance of the transformative nature of the gospel. You see, living as a Christian is not about passively waiting for God to act. It's about acting responsibly and obediently in keeping with the new nature that God has given us. Can we contribute anything to our salvation? No. But we can and we must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We can and we must be active, vigilant in our faith. We must engage in life, fight the battle, not to win our salvation, but to demonstrate the power of Christ in us and bring glory to God. We're going to continue in our study of Colossians chapter 1 this morning with a single verse that might seem to place a condition on our salvation and thereby contradict grace. One might be tempted to conclude from this verse that we are indeed saved by grace, but that we must work to keep saved, to keep ourselves saved. What we will find, however, is that our sustained effort to continue in the faith, to cling to Christ, takes nothing away from the gospel of grace. Rather, our perseverance corresponds directly to God's grace in preserving us. To get the context, we're going to read the text that Kevin Lackey exposited last week and then continue into today's text. So I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read 21 to 23. And you who were once alienated from and alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I'm going to briefly review the verses from last week's sermon as part of today's outline, because I think this whole section gives an overview of the gospel, first from God's perspective, and then from man's. It shows the interplay between the... Man's, pardon me, it shows the interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and concludes by turning the reader's attention to the hope that comes from the incredible privilege of hearing the gospel personally as it, as it is proclaimed throughout all the world. That same gospel that transformed the Apostle Paul from a menace to the church to a minister of the gospel. 
We'll start by looking at the need for the gospel in verse 21. Then we'll look at the peace of the gospel in the first part of verse 22. Next, we'll look at the goal of the gospel in the second part of verse 22. And in the first part of 23, we'll look at the proof of the gospel. And finally, in the last part of 23, we will conclude with the hope of the gospel. So let's start with the need for the gospel. Kevin really explained this well last week, but we need to consider it briefly here. <clears throat> Verse 21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This verse describes the Colossians before they had received the gospel, and it describes the default state of all humanity. We are born into this world alienated from God. We are not by nature, we are by nature, pardon me, we are not by nature citizens of God's kingdom. In fact, we are at war with his kingdom, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It would be bad enough if we were at war with one another, with fellow human beings, but we are at war with God. We are at war with Christ, who according to verse 15 is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We are hostile toward the one who created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. We are at war with the king of kings. And folks, that is not a war we can win. This is very bad news. Unless God intervenes, we are on a collision course with his fierce anger and flawless justice. Not only are we at war with God in our hearts and minds, but with our bodies we do evil things directed against him. As a society, we have by and large reverted to paganism, worshiping the creation instead of the creator. These are serious, there are serious consequences for this. And they are clearly laid out in Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to read a few verses from there, starting at 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are unnatural or contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what is not what not ought to be done ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. <clears throat> they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, foolish faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Can you see, can you feel the world's deep need for the gospel? 
Can you see the hell-bent trajectory of this sin-sick world? More directly, can you see yourself anywhere in that description? Are you alienated from God? Thank you. Are you alienated from God? Hostile in mind. If so, you need the gospel. And there's not a man, woman, or child on this earth who will be spared the coming wrath apart from the gospel. We truly need the good news. And that brings us to verse 22, where we find the peace of the gospel. We read that the people who were alienated and hostile toward God doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. If we truly recognize the peril we are in, being at war with God, how glorious, how glorious the thought of peace with God must be. Left to ourselves, we could never establish peace because we are hostile toward God in our very nature. The Bible calls us, says that we are by nature children of wrath. All of Adam's descendants stand condemned, sinners by nature and by choice. But unlike the first Adam, Jesus did not fall into sin, though he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus kept God's law perfectly, and then he went willingly to the cross, laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin. The first Adam died for his own sin and passed his guilt on to the world. In Adam, all die. The second Adam died for the sins of the world not his own sins, being made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Just as one enters the lineage of Adam, of the first Adam, by physical birth, so one enters the lineage of the second Adam by spiritual birth. When we repent and trust in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and are born again by the Spirit of God. That is the peace of the gospel. Christ has reconciled hostile aliens to God in his body of flesh by his death. But why would Christ do such a thing? What was the ultimate goal? What was the end game? of all of this? Was it only to save us from the wrath of God and snatch us from the jaws of hell? Hardly. In the second part of verse 22, we see exactly why Christ went to the cross. It says that he did this in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is the goal of the gospel, and it's point number three if you're taking notes. Christ did not merely die merely to rescue us. He died and rose again to perfect us. To present us before the Godhead, holy, blameless, and above reproach. I shudder to think what it would be like if it were up to me to present myself before God. I would surely be consumed by His holiness. 
I would be like Isaiah, woe to me, for I have seen, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. My sin sodden flesh would melt in his consuming presence. But thank God I will never have to present myself before him. Jesus will present me complete in him, clothed in his righteousness, filled with his spirit, incorruptible in a resurrected body. I know that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. I know that though now I struggle with sin, though sanctification is slow, though discipline is painful, I will one day be like him when I see him as he is. This is why Jesus died, to present those who were once hostile enemies of God blameless before him. It is God's goal, and he will not fail. Now, so far, so good. This is the gospel we all know and love. This is God's grace greater than all our sin. But now we come to the difficult part of our text, the condition connected to the goal of the gospel. We read in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It sure sounds like it's up to us to keep ourselves saved, doesn't it? It sounds like if we have a lapse in belief, we might just lose our salvation. Let me just come right out and say that this verse does not in any way contradict God's sovereignty and salvation. When God sets a goal, he keeps it. Jesus explains this well in John chapter 6, verses 27 to 30. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you ever doubt the security of the believer, that is a slam dunk. There is no way we can be snatched out of Christ's hands. There is no way we can be snatched out of the Father's hands if we are his sheep and if he knows us. So how do we make sense of this condition? If indeed you continue in the faith. Some might immediately think of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But properly understood, this doctrine asserts that no one who is truly saved will ever be lost. Romans chapter 8 tells us that no one can bring a charge against God's elect. That nothing can separate those God has called and chosen from the love of Christ. And that God makes everything work together for the good of the elect and that all whom God saves will be glorified. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14 says that believers are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. These and other texts refer to the preserving work of God, not to the tenacity of saints. Persevering Perseverance of the saints is part of the doctrines of grace because it is just that, a work of grace. God preserves us 
preserves his saints by keeping us in the faith until our glorification. Because of confusion over the term perseverance, many have relabeled the preser- relabeled it the preservation of the saints or the eternal security of believers. But the word perseverance, the fact that the saints do persevere should not be neglected. It is rather a description of the true believer than a prescription for salvation. And although our text seems to be placing emphasis on human work rather than God's work, it does not contradict the biblical doctrine of eternal security. Now, we are amidst an evangelical culture that likes to declare, once saved, always saved. And this is a true statement when there is real regeneration involved. But it certainly does not apply to everyone who has ever said a sinner's prayer or walk the aisle to the pleadings of an evangelist. There are far too many people who walk away from such commitments and go to their graves with not even a modicum of faith. When Paul writes to the Colossians, he understands the possibility that something that some of his audience, some of his readers may have something that I'm going to call fleshy faith. The same kind of faith that drew some people to Jesus but was abandoned when his teachings became too difficult. Fleshy faith is depicted in the parable of the soils, where the seed in two cases sprouts up, because, but because of various hardships, never bears fruit. It is the seed that falls on the good soil, and that produces good fruit, that represents the true believer. I believe that when our text makes salvation conditional upon a believer continuing in the faith, it is simply describing what a real believer looks like and pointing out the endurance that the gospel produces. A true believer is one who continues in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting shifting from the hope of the gospel. A true believer is one who endures to the end. And he who endures to the end will be saved. Who stands before Christ at the end of the age. And every believer who stands before Christ at the end of the age. Will give all glory to Christ. For their perseverance. For their endurance. You see, continuing in the faith is the proof of the gospel. That's point number four or more accurately, proof that the gospel has done and is continuing to do its work. Paul is not saying, better watch your step. Your salvation is hanging by a thread. Rather, he's giving a loving warning that faith is not something to be trifled with or neglected. Perseverance is the hallmark of saving faith. Paul expands upon the proof of the gospel with three phrases following the words, if indeed. First, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith. That is, if you continue to believe the sound doctrine presented in the pages of Scripture and centering on the gospel. Later on, Paul will warn the Colossians not to be taken in by false teaching. So this little phrase reminds them that there is such a thing as the faith. 
an unchanging repository of teaching that militates against novel ideas and philosophies. A true Christian gravitates toward the clear teaching of Scripture, uh, or what Paul calls the things which become sound doctrine. But even a true Christian can be seduced by false doctrine for a time, if not vigilant. So the warning is important as a safeguard against being deceived. Next, second, Paul describes true faith as stable and steadfast. I won't go into the Greek here because I'm not a Greek scholar, but the commentaries I read said that these terms, stable and steadfast, are related to the construction industry, particularly the laying of a foundation, stable, steadfast. Now, we've all been well taught that the foundation of our faith is laid by the apostles and the prophets, with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This reminds me of 2 Peter 1.5 where it says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with, brother, uh, with godliness, and godliness, affection, uh, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I can't read this passage without imagining a foundation called faith. It is the bedrock of our Christian life, Christ being the cornerstone, the teachings of the apostles and prophets making up the foundation. We are to add to that foundation all the other qualities that God provides and because they are laid upon that firm foundation, the whole structural structure will be stable and steadfast. The whole structure of a grounded, faith-grounded life will be the proof of the gospel, a testimony to the grace of God. Third, Paul describes true faith as not shifting from the hope of the gospel. He is preparing his readers for the warnings about false teachers he will give later. But the idea is that these false teachings place hope in things other than the gospel, other than Christ. False teachings have a way of getting our eyes off of Jesus and onto ourselves or some other guru or some twist of the truth. They invariably lead either to legalism or licentiousness, both of which provide only fleeting earthly hope. The gospel points us to Jesus and lifts our eyes and lifts our eyes to heaven in anticipation of seeing him face to face and being presented blameless before him. Earlier in verse 5 in this same chapter Paul speaks of the hope laid up for you in heaven which they they had heard before in the word of truth the gospel. In short, Paul's description of the proof of the gospel in a believer can be summed up in three words and three descriptions. One, continuity, stay in the faith. Number two, stability, stand on the foundation. And number three, tenacity, stick to the hope. The remainder of our text deals with the hope of the gospel, which Paul again qualifies with three phrases. First, he says that it is, it is the gospel that you heard. 
For the Colossian believers, the gospel was a message of hope delivered verbally to them through Epaphras and then later through others, including Paul. The fact that they had personally heard the gospel must have thrilled them. According to verse 6, they had not only heard it, but also understood the grace of God in truth. And the fact that they had heard and understood would have filled them with hope. To understand the grace of God in truth is itself an evidence of saving faith because the natural mind cannot receive these things, the things of the Spirit. Only a regenerate mind, a born-again mind, can receive and believe the good news. The gospel must be heard. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The gospel is not transmitted through deeds of kindness or communicated by good behavior. It must be proclaimed to be, to be effective. The gospel is a message of hope. Today you're hearing the gospel. If you understand the grace of God in truth, you can indeed rejoice in the hope of the gospel. And if you do, do not understand, pray for understanding. Pray that God would open your eyes, that you might receive it. Next, Paul says that the hope of the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Now, he's likely using hyperbole here. In fact, I'm sure that he is, for uh, he, that he's exaggerating to make his point, because clearly there were yet areas in the world where the gospel had not yet been preached. But his point is that the gospel, in addition to being a message of hope, is a mission of hope. It is a global initiative a divine initiative that started in Jerusalem, spread to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. It is still spreading. The gospel is energetic, even explosive in its impact. The Colossian believers would have drawn hope from the fact that the gospel they believed was not just a little local stirring. It was a global shaking. We read in Hebrews that the the, the word of God or that the judgment of God will shake the world, leaving only those things that cannot be shaken to stand. The gospel has already transformed the world, had already transformed the world, the Colossians knew, and 2,000 years later, it is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Finally, Paul identifies himself with the gospel by saying, of which, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We, hear, we see here that the gospel is also a ministry of hope. The word minister here in the Greek is doulos, which means a servant or a slave. Paul says that he became a slave or a servant of the gospel. That implies that the gospel itself had mastery over Paul and determined the course of his life. And to think that he had started out railing against the gospel and imprisoning Christians. In short order, the persecutor had become a preacher. It's as if Paul is inviting his readers to examine his life, to see what God has done and take courage from his continual, steadfast, unshifting testimony. Friends, we are in the midst of perilous times. And if you have heard and understood the gospel of grace and truth, be encouraged. Christ will not fail. Oh, and I should say, if you have believed, if you believe this gospel, 
Christ will not fail to reach his goal of presenting you blameless and above reproach in heaven. The world will mock you. False teachers will entice you. Pleasures will tempt you. But Christ will not leave you. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Run the race that is set before you, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. To conclude this message, I would like to read what I consider an extended benediction from Romans chapter 8. It so beautifully captures the essence of the believer's security, but it also explains how the persevering life comes only by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. The walk of faith is described herein as walking in the Spirit. I'm going to invite you to stand as we read Romans chapter 8 together. If you're able to stand, please join me. Let these words sink in. We completely uh, re-preach the sermon that I just preached. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to, to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of, the, of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the, to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be, might be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. For the creation waits eagerly, longing for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God.
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. We do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, to, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he, he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarding, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the truth of your gospel. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that is so simple and yet is so deep and so foundational to spiritual life. I pray, Lord, that the gospel of Christ coming into the world dying for sinners, which includes all who are here, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him through faith in his blood. Lord, that that message would take root, that it would encourage those who are in Christ, that it would convict those who are not, that we might find peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ being reconciled by his body in his death. We ask, Lord, that as we go from here, by your grace we would persevere, that we would continue in the faith, sure and steadfast, that we would not shift from the hope of the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, that you will sustain and you will keep all that the Father has given to the Son. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're dismissed.